Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the fallout continues from the investigation into the problems at the Veterans Administration health facilities around the country. Secretary Eric Shinsiki offered his resignation and the president uh, accepted his resignation. It's become very clear that there were far more systemic issues underway, not only at the Phoenix facility that first garnered the negative attention, but perhaps at dozens of other VA facilities as well. Well, as the investigation has proceeded, the story on the Phoenix VA hospital is that the average wait time was 115 days to get an appointment And uh, they report that perhaps 40 veterans may have died while waiting for treatment. In a report by Inspector General Richard Griffin, it's been learned that some 1,700 veterans weren't actually on any wait list and went without treatment altogether. So a full-scale national review now underway at all VA facilities. According to reports, there are some 40 facilities that may have similar issues to report. It speaks to some larger issues at play here, Margaret. We're in something of a perfect storm, an aging veterans population, more complex health problems and older conflicts like Vietnam and Korea. We have hundreds of thousands of new veterans seeking treatment from more recent conflicts and and really a shortage, as we all know, of primary care physicians, in some cases an acute shortage. Well, VA Administrator Eric Shinseki had said prior to his resignation that the investigation was certainly going to continue and they would be working to set things straight. Regardless of his departure, I think that this effort will continue the work of getting trust restored to the Veterans Administration, which has done so much good uh, in so many areas and created so many innovations, just has to go on. This has to get fixed. Then it's also been confirmed that there were systemic cover-ups of these uh, wait time records at various hospitals. Those responsible are going to be held accountable, as the president has promised. Calls for Shinseki's resignation are mounting, Margaret, from both sides of the aisle now. You know, Mark, it's ironic because the VA has been out in front on so many issues when it comes to utilizing electronic health records, making health information available to veterans through their very successful Blue Button Initiative. That's the online portal that allowed hundreds of thousands of veterans to access their health records. So in some ways, they've enjoyed some modern uh, conveniences or innovations that really have made their care more seamless and, and better for veterans. And that's something our guest today is quite passionate about. Dr. Karen DeSalvo is the new national coordinator at the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT at the Department of Health and Human Services. And her, her job is to help advance the meaningful use of health information technology in the healthcare setting and to set the stage for better sharing of health data through health information exchanges. She has unique insights into the complexities of meaningful use, and she She's the former health commissioner for the city of New Orleans. Uh, in that role, helped modernize the city system in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. So we are really looking forward to hearing from her. That we are. And we'll also hear from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, looking at false campaign claims around the Affordable Care Act, something we should expect to see quite a bit more as the campaign season heats up. That's right. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio or Find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Karen DeSalvo in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 
The investigation into the Veterans Health Administration hospital issues continues in the wake of the resignation of Secretary Eric Shinseki after whistleblower allegations that dozens of patients may have died at a Phoenix facility while waiting for months for an appointment that didn't come in time. Now more than 40 VA hospitals have come under intense scrutiny by the Inspector General's office and evidence is mounting issues made public out of the Phoenix facility are systemic throughout the VA. The White House vowing to get to the bottom of all the problems, denying merit bonuses to anyone higher up the VA food chain and punishing those engaged in falsifying VA hospital records to appear to be compliant with required patient wait times. More than four years after enactment of the health care law, six in ten Americans say neither they nor their families have been affected by the sweeping measure. Among those who say the law has impacted them, Republicans much more likely to say their families have been hurt by the law, some 37 percent, while Democrats are more likely to say their families have been helped than hurt, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation's monthly tracking poll. Measles, mumps, rubella, the standard first line of immunization defense for babies being born in America. But the recent uptick in parents refusing immunizations for their babies has produced a downside. Measles rates are at their highest rate in 20 years. So far this year, there have been a little under 300 cases more than the total for all of last year. While the numbers aren't particularly high, the trend is untenable. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 85 percent of this year's cases were people denying vaccination based on religion, philosophical or personal objections. And getting that bronze glow artificially is going to be tougher for kids under 18 if the FDA has its way. New regulations banning tanning bed use for teens under 18 studies show 57 to 75 percent increased risk for melanoma for those folks engaged in regular tanning bed use and young skin is much more vulnerable to long-term exposure. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Karen DeSalvo, National Coordinator at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT at the Department of Health and Human Services. Before joining HHS, Dr. DeSalvo was the Health Commissioner of the City of New Orleans, where she oversaw the transformation of the city's public health system, an internist with a focus on public health. Dr. DeSalvo taught at Tulane University School of Medicine. She also served as president of the Louisiana Healthcare Quality Forum and the National Association of Chiefs of General Internal Medicine. She earned her medical degree and master's in public health from Tulane University, and her master's in clinical epidemiology from the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. DeSalvo, welcome to Conversations. Well, Mark, thanks for having me. You know, we've had the great opportunity of having a number of national uh, coordinators on, but you've shifted the focus of ONC beyond the adoption of electronic health records to meaningful use in interoperability. And we're seeing most hospital systems around the country are now utilizing EHR, a little over 60% of the practices as well. So first, could you share with us uh, what the five main goals are in the ONC's mission for health IT, and why is it a pivotal time to target our sites beyond implementation to the next significant phase of meaningful use and interoperability? Reached a tipping point that gives us this opportunity to start to think beyond the important role of adoption of certified electronic health record technology in the clinical environment to um, look in towards a way to free that data and see that it moves across the care continuum with patients to save lives, to improve care, lower costs. The exciting chapter uh, we also are entering is one in which 
we can begin to think beyond healthcare as a key driver in improving health, which of course is important, but many know that almost 80% or more of people's health outcome is related to where they live, learn, work, and play. So if we continue this progress in, in standard data capture, collecting the health information to improve clinical care, we also then have to build a good platform that allows information from patients, from their social environment to enter the healthcare and health information to not only improve care, but then public health, better patient engagement and empowerment. And then that data can actually inform major public health initiatives, do surveillance work to improve the entire population's health. I think that's the sort of the what is exciting now and what is different, and it's because we've reached this tipping point allows us to look beyond healthcare and into health. The, the agenda that we have um, is really dominated by this need to have an interoperable set of electronic health records, but more importantly, a platform of interoperability that allows data to flow once uh, captured in a standardized fashion. It also means that we need to continue paying attention to creating the right floor. That means that everybody's in. This is an accountability responsibility of of us here at ONC to see that there's not a digital divide, but we're bringing the whole country along and creating a solid, strong, safe, secure platform that can support innovation on top of it, but also make sure that, that everybody is in. We create the opportunity to drive forward and to create a system that is that is increasingly safe and uh, of better quality that informs delivery, not only in the way of payment reform, but informs delivery in the way of creating new models that can actually be much more patient-centric. While I think from a public perspective, entities like uh, CMS, the Office of the National Coordinator, CDC, Department of Health and Human Services might seem like very separate institutions, everybody seems to be singing from the same songbook at this time about the need to focus on data and the need to focus on the social determinants of health along with the health care that we deliver. And I think that's going to serve us to great end. The third would be from a public point of view, Meaningful use, of course. Why would you have anything other than meaningful use? I don't think outside of people who are actively working on this, people really understand what that is. So maybe just as a primer for our listeners, meaningful use phase one versus meaningful use phase two, what are the core differences there? And maybe you could add on to that. Why have you um, chosen to delay the requirement for implementation of uh, phase two to 2015? That's a tall order, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, thanks for the question about it, because it is it is such an important investment that our taxpayers have made in modernizing the healthcare data infrastructure, and and so we should understand it. Uh, the High Tech Act, which was uh, part of the stimulus funding, uh, provided an opportunity for the country to make a financial investment that would offset the cost of adopting certified electronic health records to create a structured way that physicians and hospitals would, first of all, know that that the products they were buying would be able to perform the kinds of work that they wanted them to do. So, for example, to allow for electronic prescribing. The funds would also then help direct the country to not only adopt, but to begin to engage in some shared important quality improvement processes to help advance the nation's health care And then as we move into stage three, an opportunity for us to begin to think about further advancing the interoperability of those systems. So we're starting to look at not just the single visit of care and the care 
uh, for the patient in front of us, but how the care can be rolled up across the continuum, understand where there's redundancy or um, opportunities for us to improve people's health care because of the interoperability and move towards outcomes. Doing this in a very structured fashion has meant that we can build an evidence base for what works and doesn't work as we begin to adopt electronic health records. And it also allows us to have a set of shared standards uh, like uh, Legos or Lincoln Logs that, that are the fundamental building blocks for this information about individual populations and the public's health that over time is going to really dramatically advance not only care of the person in front of us, but advanced public health opportunities for surveillance and care quality and safety and, and science. So you've got going on in Washington the Data Palooza 2014. What are the goals of this year's gathering of health IT geeks, if you will, and what kinds of innovation are looking most promising in addressing the this new health data infrastructure? So it has gone in a few short years from being non-existent to now 2,500 people coming from around the globe. Wow. Yes, to participate in a mixture of events that include codathons, international work between the UK and the US to align priorities and opportunities for quality measurement and improvement, and then a series of workshops about exciting work and efforts that are happening, such as our Blue Button program that is uh, we're partnering with Great Britain on. But so it's a really broad mix of big thinking and concrete thinking about how data improves healthcare and health. There's two big topics that come up all the time in the public and private sector. One is about interoperability, so to really get to the promise of sharing data across the continuum, whether about individuals or rolling it up into a macro level for big data, we have to have systems that can talk to each other. We have to come to agreement that blood pressure will be measured as an integer in three digits in the electronic health record, you know, mm-hmm. um, and by, by wearable devices. But, but as we get closer to having agreement on these things, we really can enable patients. So uh, with all the excitement, um, we are thinking of a couple of important areas. Uh, one, that big data needs to, especially as we evolve out of the space of the traditional HIPAA-covered data, we're really paying a lot of attention to the privacy and security issues. We sometimes may forget to make space for the patient's voice, whether that's patient-reported mm-hmm. outcomes or their own wearables or, or self-generated data, and that is critically important. It really mm-hmm. matters. So we should make room in the big data for them is, is what I'm saying. And sometimes they can tell us more than, mm-hmm. than a lot of analytics. And the final piece is we should be thoughtful about having a priori hypotheses, mm-hmm. lest we prove that water is wet or something <laughs> that, we, that we already know. Yep. Yep. And um, really use this opportunity that we have as a country with computing analytics to advance care and health and science in really thoughtful ways. You served as health commissioner of the city of New Orleans a while back, entering that position a few years after Hurricane Katrina. And you've been credited with doing much to enhance the public health system in the city, building a health information infrastructure, and also supporting the improvement and development of community clinics. What did you learn from that experience that other entities might be able to learn from on the national level? And what's the impact, been? What happened to us in New Orleans was horrific, but it was also a chance for us to hit the reset button and start over to do better for people in our city. We have a history of high cost, poor outcomes, and a population with very limited access to care, a public hospital system that once you were in, dedicated and caring people to to take care of you, but no front lines. So seeing a lot of people Mm -hmm. with end-stage syphilis in a Mm -hmm. time in America when 
it's a perfectly treatable disease if yeah. caught early. Mm-hmm. This is one example. I mean, a host of other chronic disease complications. So we came together um, in the literally in the early days after Katrina. It grew into a structured process at the state level to, to drive healthcare reform. And all along the way, we knew that strong health IT infrastructure was critical to helping us appropriately care for people in, individually, but to plan for new populations that would return to do a better job at a holistic approach, for example, with integrating mental health. Mm-hmm. And frankly, because of the devastation and the, the loss of our legacy paper system, we were able to jump over some of the problems of workflow redesign and, and start these new clinics that had never existed mm-hmm. with electronic health records. So as we built a the infrastructure for our city, it was meant to widen the tent, get everyone in, change the financial model and the payment structure to support primary care in the neighborhoods with medical homes, and then inform care, help to plan using health IT. I learned some very important things, and part of this was really underscored and better defined when I moved into the city health department to shape that agency into one that could really support the public's health in our community. It was really struggling. I would say that I'm taking with me to this job some of those lessons, and they include that having a set of values and principles that guide your work and every decision that helps keep everyone focused and at the table, Mm -hmm. that um, as a public health official, you have the accountability to everyone in your community, everyone who lives, learns, works, and plays in your community, which helps uh, with uh, questions of equity and and decision-making and prioritization that have to help as many as possible. Um, I also learned about this, the power of collective impact approaches. So setting a shared vision with everyone who, um, who can participate, should participate, and um, then working cooperatively and then uh, feeding back the data on how we're doing, how we're progressing. And the, the backbone of that, the infrastructure, is, especially if you take IT as an example, ONC doesn't make EHRs. We don't have, a, as we say in the South, a dog in the hunt. Mm-hmm. Our dog in the hunt is, is to see that everything is working in concert and that we're moving forward mm-hmm. as a country in an inclusive fashion that allows a leading edge of innovation that supports a floor of, of standardization that can bring everyone along. And in the way that, that we did build in New Orleans in the health department and what we did even prior to that of, of creating infrastructure where there wasn't quite a ready health department is how I'm approaching work at the federal level. And we're speaking today with Dr. Karen DeSalvo, National Coordinator at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT in the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, your office recently lauded the recommendations of a report, uh, a robust health data infrastructure produced by Jason, an independent group of scientists that advises the federal governments on matters of science and technology. And the report calls for uh, building a framework uh, that supports ONC's vision for effective and uh, efficient interoperable uh, health IT systems. Why are the JSON recommendations so important, and what are some of the interoperability changes that lie ahead for us? This report is really timely because the notion of interoperability is front and foremost on the minds of consumers, innovators, payers, vendors, governments, the private sector, employers, and so we need to find the right platform for sharing. What's exciting about it is that it speaks to a future vision that is a lighter superstructure, a superhighway on top of deep repositories of data, and it creates a, a platform, if you will, that allows data to enter and exit from sources that go beyond 
electronic health records. And the traditional notion that patients' health information resides only in electronic health records, of course, is a traditional notion. It's an, it's an important piece of data and offices, doctor's offices, but there's much more that we, we want to and need to be able to integrate or into health data bank or into cloud-based worlds. And this JSON report speaks to a world that allows for that. It, it takes it accounts for the legacy systems that provides for potential path forward to allow other sources of data to be included. And it does this in a way that is problem-solving around the technology and, and takes advantage of some advances in technology that are somewhat new. It also speaks to the importance of privacy and security of data and some ways that we might be able to ensure the privacy and security, but also allow for it to be used as big data and have patients have much more access to their own information to help with their own decision-making. Uh, the JSONs are not HIT people, by and large, and so this is the smart scientists who came together to solve a problem and in some ways are looking at it from the lens of a different industry or background. And, you know, sometimes when you want to solve a really hard challenge like we have around interoperability, it's so helpful to have the eyes of uh, folks who are not entrenched in the traditional world but to take a fresh look. We are in the process of working with ARC and others to get feedback from technical folks, from policy folks, privacy and security partners, and get a rounder picture, see where there are maybe gaps in the report that might need to be fleshed out. The rounding out of this for us is that there needs to be some deep thinking about governance of the data, both when it's at rest and in motion, and there needs to be um, a business model that supports a sustainable infrastructure that is accessible to everyone, irrespective of ability to pay, geography, et cetera. So there's some big unanswered questions they deliberately did not address in the report because mm-hmm. it's not part of their scope, but, but we will be looking to, to get those addressed. So Dr. Salvo, I want to just uh, take one brief uh, moment of time to get your thoughts on another forward uh, focus issue, and that's training the next generation. We spend a lot of time addressing the issue of training the next generation of healthcare delivery professionals. But we know we need to train the next generation of health IT professionals as well. Is there a role for government in this? Are you engaged in promoting that at universities, colleges, community colleges around the country? This is uh, part of the capacity building. not enough to put in the, the computer and the electronic health record and flip a switch. So you're exactly right. We have to be certain that from the front desk to the back office, that there is a, some sort of universal understanding of the potential and promise and challenges of HIT. There's a vocabulary associated with it that should be integrated into not only health professional training, but probably even beyond that for anyone moving into the healthcare environment. The, the nursing field has led the way in this, and they have done, uh, they have curriculum that touches all of their, their students. I think that they're a model we should consider. As we go forward, we can all decide how deep it should go at ONC. Because of the funding given through the High Tech Act, we were able to spur the development of curricula across the country with a heavy focus on community colleges because those are places where such a large, important part of the workforce trains, whether that's in nursing or laboratory or phlebotomy or management. And so we have been able to, to kickstart thinking and, and structure in that area, but there is a lot of work still to be done. We work in partnership with uh, HRSA and increasingly with the Department of Labor to see what, what ways we can all collaborate and be uh, in sync so that we can help advance the capacity in the country. 
I, I don't want to uh, uh, miss the opportunity, though, to say that it's not just about the healthcare environment. The public health in informatics infrastructure is an incredibly important piece of this, and they are working as a community to uh, advance the capacity of public health informaticists and think through ways that they can ensure that, they're, that they are um, prepared for a future in which there's an information exchange increasingly and that there's the big data that needs to be addressed and and handled to improve the public's health. We've been speaking today with Dr. Karen DeSalvo, National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services. You can learn more about their work by going to healthit.gov, and you can follow her on Twitter by going to at KB DeSalvo. Dr. DeSalvo, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you all for having me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we've seen many candidates attacked for their support of the Affordable Care Act. And now, in the 2014 midterm races, we're seeing candidates who opposed the law still being attacked for supporting it. The attacks, of course, are false. For instance, in the Republican primary of the Mississippi Senate race, a Tea Party group is airing an ad that claims longtime Senator Thad Cochran, quote, says he opposes Obamacare, but he accepts a special exemption for himself and his staff. Cochran does more than say he opposed the law, he voted against it, and he voted to repeal it. As for the special exemption, that's not true either. Cochran and his staff went into the Washington, D.C. insurance exchange as required of Congress by the law. The federal government picks up 72% of federal employees' premiums on average, just as it did before the health care law. In the Arkansas governor's race, Republican Asa Hutchinson accuses his Democratic opponent, Mike Ross, of, quote, supporting the bill that led to Obamacare. Actually, Ross was one of only 34 House Democrats who voted against the Affordable Care Act, and he was one of only three Democrats who voted to repeal it in 2011. Hutchinson's ad refers to a committee vote that Ross agreed to only after securing certain concessions. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. During the school year, some 21 million American children receive free or reduced-priced lunches through their schools, often the healthiest meal these children eat during the school day. Yet, once school is out, only 10% of these children participate in the free meal programs during the summertime, and studies have shown that many of these kids tend to gain a significant amount of weight over the summer as a result. 
A group of researchers at the University of South Carolina sought to tackle that issue with a program they developed called the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge. They deployed the program at a number of large community-based summer day camps, and lead researcher Dr. Michael Beetz says they relied on a simple known fact about kids. They love competition. Staffers during the first snack period would ask kids to hold up the fruits or vegetables or water that they brought, and staffers would then count the number of kids that brought those items and assign them points. You get a point for a fruit, a point for a vegetable, a point for bringing in water. And then throughout the course of the week, everybody's group points are tallied. And then at the end of the week on Friday, when they get together to do an assembly, they announce the winner of the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge for that week. And so there is this competitive process. Dr. B says the simple competition and group reward system created a dramatic shift in the average camper's lunchbox from chips, cookies, and sugary drinks to more fruits, vegetables, and bottled waters. We saw some pretty dramatic increases in the proportion of kids that brought fruits and vegetables and water into the summer day camps, which were the things that we targeted with the, through the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge messages. But then on the back end, we also saw that they also reduced the things that we didn't want them to bring in without even saying, please reduce these things. And so kids are not just bringing additional fruits, vegetables, and waters, including all the other stuff. They're substituting these, these healthier items for the less helpful items. The study, published in the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, showed a dramatic shift in the kids' homemade lunches with the really simple and inexpensive incentive program. They see this as a model for summer day camps across the country, which serve some 14 million children per year, often in underserved areas. The next phase of the study will look at the actual weight and body mass index of kids in the next round of campers to calculate the impact on lowered weight gain. So in the, in the study with the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, we really were just doing a proof of concept. Can we get kids to change the foods that they're bringing in? In our next studies, which are going to be larger, that will incorporate the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, we will also be tracking BMI from the beginning to the end of summer to see if these interventions, which if those have any perceptible effect on changes. The Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, a simple competitive challenge and reward system designed to get kids to switch out high fat, high sugar, high calorie foods from their diets in favor of healthier snacks and beverages, empowering them as well as their families to make better food choices. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.